Good morning, good afternoon, and good night, wherever you're tuning in. We are Slava and Jonathan, bringing you the SideQuest Podcast, where we talk about character development, stories, and all things that are world-building. And we occasionally take side quests, because, frankly, that's how conversations work. Just as a reminder, this whole show is spoiler-heavy. So, sit back, tune in, and join us on this episode of SideQuest. Happy Saturday, Slava. Or Tuesday, if you're listening to this now, actually. Happy Tuesday, Jonathan. Happy... (laughs) Happy Tuesday. That's what they say back on the old home world, Arrakis. Yep. Happy Tuesday. Tuesday's their Saturday? That. Yeah, sure. Yeah. For sandworms, uh, every day is a Tuesday. Because every is day true. is the same. Just more spice and more sand. Yep. Anyway, before we dive into that, what would you learn this week? I'm trying a new thing here. What did I learn this week? I learned a new recipe. And it's a recipe I think I should have known because I've made other sauces very similar. Nonetheless, it was a thing I saw on Instagram and decided to try it out with some pasta and lobster tails. So Mm. for those interested, the sauce is easy. Hot pan, oil, a little bit of butter. You add your shallots. After that, you add garlic, crushed red pepper, and then parsley. At the very end, and in between that, a little bit of capers, a little bit of anchovies, like two fillets, of, little fillets of anchovies. While your pasta's cooking, make sure all that is good. A squeeze of lemon juice, a squ- maybe, I don't do uh, measurements well, but a, a little bit of wine. Cook that up, throw your pasta into it. Uh, when, when it's al dente, there you have it. Make sure it's all what, mixed how in. How much wine? It. Well, let me ask a different question, because I don't cook as often as you do. What kind of wine? Does it matter? It does. Uh, for this white wine, Sauvignon Blanc, I would suggest. Anything that would like be so. like a crispy, citrusy, minerally wine, that would be good for this sauce. Okay. And the, don't do it on the, don't overdo it on the anchovies or the capers. Uh, have enough of that to have a savory, salty kind of mixture of flavors. It has to kind of be popping, right? But I wouldn't overdo it because it's easy just to make the pasta taste like a like a, like a fishy salt, you know? Or so salty you need the, fish, the wine balances is, it out. The wine, right? the lemon juice balances it out, and also the amount. Like, again, I'm bad with measurements. I, I know how much to add because I've done this for so long. It's bad for these kind of situations when I'm trying to give somebody a recipe. But Your creativity can't be constrained to measurements. Exactly. But just be, <laughs> you know, a tablespoon of capers and two fillets of... Uh, Two fillets okay. of... that's uh, a little more specific. That's good. Two fillets so, of anchovies. Good, good. Yeah. For two people. If you're making pasta for two people and if, you know, you're medium eaters, that's how I would say it. Medium eaters? More on that medium a different eaters. day. What a if you're a yes. large eater or a small eater or a normal Cut it medium? in half or double it. <laughs> okay. Because it's all about how much pasta you have because if it's going to overpower yeah. the pasta, you know. What kind your, of pasta do you use? Use your brain. Uh, fettuccine. Right. Makes sense. So, sounds like a good week for learning. It was. Lobster tail was something I've already made a long time ago and been making it, so I didn't uh, learn anything there, but still a good lobster. That's all I got. What did you learn? Anything 
Exciting? Well, I mean, it was a little exciting, but not in a great way. I learned the difference between the emergency room and the ER. (laughs) You Uh, mean urgent care in the ER? Oh, my gosh. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. I didn't learn anything this week, apparently. I Okay. Yeah. Failed that test. The urgent care and the ER. Right, 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 right. Man, and I already told you before we started, I was like, this is the hill I'm going to die on. Can't even get it right. <laughs> well, if you didn't text me in the middle of the ordeal, uh, I probably wouldn't be able to correct you. I'd have been like, yeah, he learned the difference between the acronym and, and the, the yeah, actual yeah. word that it stands for. I'm like, wow. The, okay, well, that's- the, the little snippet here, though, is I just uh, having some trouble breathing. I think it was some residuals from the wildfire smoke coming across the nation here and couldn't breathe super well. It was on day five because I just kept expecting it to clear up, but it didn't have that type of phlegm that was colored. So it's like, okay, well, I'm not sick, but it's something. I was like trying to get in with the doctor. Doctor was busy for the next month and a half. So it's like, well, I don't think I need to go to the ER. And so I literally had to do some research to be like, is urgent care what I need? Question mark. And so this is a hill that I would die on. Urgent care is incorrectly branded because... The average person, I consider myself an average person in this instance, in, in terms of medical, the average person doesn't know, doesn't run through a list of like, oh, well, these symptoms are urgent and these symptoms are emergency. I don't know. So I think that it should be called primary care because you have your primary care provider. Then it should be called secondary care if your primary care provider is busy or can't see you. And then you have emergency uh, room stuff where it's like, if you are about to die, or you were in an accident, or you it's Thanksgiving and you didn't measure the oil by putting your cold bird in cold oil beforehand and you started a fire and then you burned half your face off, that's emergency room stuff. Everything else within reason, because we as lay people don't understand like, oh, well, if it's gastro, got to get that fixed really quick. That's emergency room stuff. But if it's like you can kind of breathe, but it's like allergies, which is what I think mine was a little bit than just emergency room like you can you're still functional you you're not going to die if you don't get this like instantly so that's uh that's what i learned even though my intro and opener would tell you that i didn't learn those things so well you have my vote as inarticulately as you explained it i used to oh thanks (laughs) (laughs) perfect perfect great Well, since I'm inarticulate, why don't you give us the review of today's uh, section that we read? Let's do it. So, this week, we have Jameis, one of the Fremen. He challenges Paul to a duel, loses, and loses pretty quickly (laughs) because Paul is a better fighter and has the Jenny Besseret, Besseret, you know, mind thingy. Uh, Kids these days. Kids these days. At Jameis's funeral, he shed some tears, and so the Fremen, you know, see this, and this wins him some favor with them because he is giving water, which is a precious commodity, to a guy he's killed, to one of their own. There's a ceremony that Jessica has to go through, and she becomes the reverend mother of this clan of the Fremen. Apparently, things get pretty spicy with... Paul and his uh, his new girl. I think Chani. her name is Chen, uh, Chennai, and because I I realized this after last week when I was thinking about, it, I was like, no, it's not Connie, even though, yeah. So, 
anyway. This is going to be a continual, we're going to have people with pitchforks, you know, at our doors. But I'm fine with that. It's not Connie. It's I'm Chani? not fine with that. No. No, it's Chennai. 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 We're going to call her Chennai. Okay. So. Hard I. So her <laughs> yeah? paw gets spicy, pun intended, and we see a little bit of gives her the, the old Baron's eye. world again. <laughs> so the Baron now got himself a new Mentat, who is Hawat, which is Leto's old Mentat, and mm-hmm. Hawat's there to destroy the Baron. And the Baron seems not to understand this because he now fully trusts Hawat. As much as he can, right? There's the Lady Fenning and Lord Fenning or Count Fenning come in, mm-hmm. and it seems like they don't like or trust the Baron. They're there on the Emperor's behest, and they witness some shenanigans, which we might get into a little later. And to me, it proves that the Baron is not as smart as we've been led to believe. He's conniving. But all his machinations, all his Fair. plans, he seems to, he always has to cover something up. And we have an interesting thing that happens where Lady Fenning wants to seduce the nephew, Baron's nephew, wow, so wow, wow. to preserve his bloodline. So she's a Ben and Jesserit too. And Count Fenning is all in on that because I guess, well, what's the word for it? He's one of those. And, uh, yes, yes, a cuck. He seems to be a cuck. I was going <laughs> to slide that in a little bit more covertly. Oh. Pun also I mean, intended. Uh, but, but there you go. Anyway, all this is happening. I think I got it all without going too much in the weeds. That's what's happening. Paul wins a duel. Paul wins Connie or Chani. Forgive us, listeners. He wins a girl. He gets a servant woman. Paul gets the girl. He gets two girls and two boys. So he gets the girl. (laughs) He gets gets Jameis' wife as a servant and her two sons as, well, as sons. He now has to take care of them. But they seem to be okay with this setup and have taken to be his bodyguards. Because even 10-year-old boys on Arrakis can kick some ass. Yep. I think I got it. Is that it? That's that's that's, that's it. it. Yeah, yeah. Because we want to keep these number. at thirty thousand feet. I think that's thirty thousand feet. Yeah. So, so I'm gonna talk about what stood out to me in this section, and then I'll I'll throw it back to you. But so this is something that I keep coming back to, and it's one of the reasons that I love reading literature these days. Even though when I was growing up, I didn't love reading literature. Herbert's writing style, the the minor details he uses to describe things, but also cut up dialogue, is it's like hitting the acceleration pad on Mario Kart. It like reignites your imagination for what's going on. He's like, hey, here's a little detail. Baron Harkonnen's jowls jiggled while he was, you know, floating through the corridor. And you're like, ugh, gross. And it's like, yeah, that's yeah. that's what you're supposed to feel. Or in the middle of a conversation in one of these buildings, and I think it was with Count and Lady Fenring, was, you know, he describes the crown molding a little bit and what's what the room that they're in is is doing in the middle of their conversation. Just one or two sentences. Nothing, yeah. you know, not 
three paragraphs, just one or two things here and there. He also transitions into foreshadowing where, you know, she at the end of this section where Fade Rafa is in this dueling triangle. I'd call it a ring, but it's a triangle. And she's like, yeah, Bene Gesserit saying is never believe someone's dead unless you see the body and even then think twice. Something like that. Mm-hmm, exactly. And there's, and this is a spoiler, and only, I haven't read the next books, but from what I recall, they bring back Duncan as sort of this necromantic undead being. And awesome. so it's like, that's a little, that's even right there, some more foreshadowing of stuff that you, you don't even see coming. And he just slides these things in as if it's as normal as breathing to him, which is crazy to me. Because he's just, he does it so well. His ability to maneuver with third-person omniscient writing is exquisite. Hands down. He does it well. Yeah, absolutely. And I know that Tolkien didn't, we talked about this last time, Tolkien didn't really love this novel, but I feel like you got to give him props. Like, Frank Herbert did a really good job as someone who, what did we say, he only read fantasy or or sci-fi for like, four years and then started writing it something like that it was yeah. like a he was short a, amount of time yeah he was a lecturer and we mentioned that he brings an ecology a lot into his writing because he was yeah. an environmentalist so that's really important for herbert so that's why yeah. all the stuff comes out i think tolkien might have not liked herbert not because he was a bad writer or he didn't like the story that much but as writers sometimes butt heads, it goes back to that old word that you know our audience loves, worldview, right? Mm-hmm. The, mm-hmm. Both are coming at the question of you know fate versus free will, human suffering. Those are the themes that we'll, we'll talk a little bit about them in a second here. But both of them are coming from a different perspective, you know, different worldview. So maybe, and we'll leave it here, maybe that's why Tolkien was a little, uh, let's throw in some hate. George Herbert. <laughs> it's yeah, probably. Anyway, those are some of the things that stood out to me in this section. I think that oh, one last thing. Not just third person omniscient, but his ability to to weave in a suspense as well because it feels to me like pressure is continuing to build similar to what you said a minute ago about Baron Harkonnen not being as smart as he thinks he is because he has to always cover his tracks. And there's yeah. just these moments where you're like, "Oh, the pressure's building." Oh, the pressure's building for the bad guy, too. Oh, interesting. So those are some of the things that stood out to me in this section. I'm going to toss it to you. What stood out to you in this section? The things that stood out to me is the stuff I mentioned earlier, Baron being not as smart as he thinks he is, because we're kind of given this idea, well, here's this guy who's playing the emperor and playing Leto, and he's moving all these chess pieces. Now, not so much, because he's... He's one of the chess pieces. And finally, I would say one thing that stood out to me is that the pathway to power and survival is always, uh, dare I say, uh, I'll say it, is always dependent on suffering and death of people and even the environment. Again, Herbert, ecology, systems, the sandworm needs to die to make the water of life potion drink for the ceremony, for the Bene Gesserit ceremony with the Fremen. The people die for the spice. The spice changes them so some of them can't even leave Arrakis anymore. All the, all the political machinations that have to go on 
for the Baron to get his way, for the Emperor to get his way, for Paul and Jessica to survive, there's a lot of moving pieces and yep. a lot of it's suffering. Yes, he gets, you know, Chani as a as a girl, and it's supposedly love at first sight kind of for them, right? So he gets the girl and the the servant woman he inherits and her sons, they respect him. So there's no, you know, cliche BS there. But he sees a future that is bleak and he sees a, a jihad coming. His survival and the survival of his mother, the survival of his sister and then son and wife and two stepsons is all dependent on fighting. There, it's not an easy world. And I think the reality of that is what attracts me so much what to this book. Because, yes, it's sci-fi. Yes, it's speculative in some sense. Yes, it's just a story. There's supposed to be a moral or a lesson or a thing that Herbert's trying to tell us. But the method of him doing that is so well-crafted. I could read a book and go, okay, yes, you know, the free will versus fate. That's, that was a good takeaway from book X. But here... Uh, I'm seeing it in every section. It's presented well. So, yeah, those are the things that stood out to me. Speaking of power, let's just quickly shift over to the inner monologues or inner inner dialogues, I guess, with Jessica and Paul, and how we have like two or three lines where they're having this subconscious battle of like wait, why did he play this song for her, this love song? And then Paul's like, my mother's now my enemy. And like that kind of shifted on a on a dime here. And I didn't really see it coming. I've read the book before, but it's been a while. But I, I you know, what do you think about that? How do you reconcile like, oh yeah, this makes sense as opposed to like, oh, it feels out of place. Because it feels a little out of place to me, at least where we stand right now. It doesn't to me. And I'll tell you why. Jessica worrying about him playing a song for Connie. Wait, what's her f- really? Well, how do you say it? I don't want to keep... Chennai? It. No, it's not Chennai. That's what it's, it says in the audiobook. Chennai? Really? Okay, I'm going to pull it up. Well, Cheney is the way Frank Herbert said it. Cheney, okay. Cheney it is. Set me up again. Paul and his mother back and forth. Yes. Okay. Yep, I got it. Yeah, I'll, I'll. that makes sense to me. It makes sense to me, and I'll tell you why. When Paul is courting, even though he doesn't know it, Cheney, then he sings her the song and gives her the rings, All you know, not in that order, but all that stuff happening, it's understandable why Jessica, as a mother, who's trying to protect him and herself and the unborn child in this strange new world that she hasn't really had a, got, has a pulse on yet as a Benny Jesserit, it's natural for her to be, you know, the kind of helicoptering over Paul. Who's this girl? Why is he doing this with this girl? So that's kind of a natural, annoying mother thing. And then Paul perceiving her as an enemy is also natural to me and not out of place for one reason. He has surpassed her in many ways in the, the weirding thing, as a, one of the Fremen calls it. There's things he still has to learn. But his perception of time and the future and present and his ability to kind of read the surroundings has surpassed her because he sees without even the visions or the visions support it. 
he sees problems for the Fremen in the future, especially if he becomes, you know, their Messiah figure. He sees a problem there. Jessica, by all accounts, is so focused on survival that she doesn't see the things that Paul sees. And because she's going to take that reverent mother role, Paul sees that as her helping bring about the jihad that he wants to avoid. So her her being the protective mother and being a little weird about it is natural because mother's always weird about this stuff. And Paul seeing her as an enemy, that's also, it seems natural to me because of how Paul is growing and where Paul sees with his newfound powers, where Paul sees Arrakis and the Fremen going in the future. Right. Does that Fair make enough. sense? It, it makes sense. The overbearing mother position, I looked past because it's a sci-fi novel. But when you say it, it's like, oh, well, okay. Yeah. I mean that, yeah, that makes sense. And also from a royal and political status, like, oh, you can't be, you know, dilly-dallying with the riffraff. Because the bloodlines, right? Bloodlines are really popular in this series. So that makes sense when you say it. The I don't see... I know we were told this, but I don't see moments where Paul succeeds and Jessica fails in the Benny Jesuit training. And I, I think I'd like to. I think I'd like that moment where it's like, hey, Paul's exceeded Jessica... Here's two incidences that happen in the next chapter or two to show me because I prefer a show versus tell. And I complained about this in some other book at some point. But that's just like a, I want the icing or I want the cherry on the cake. That's that's what I want. It's not bad, but I like if I could have something just a little more, that's what I'd like. What we saw in the first section as they were escaping where Paul says, oh, wow, she doesn't see she can't sense this and she can't see this like where he has this like, you know, infusion of power. That wasn't mm. enough. You're saying, you're saying you want something. Well, it wasn't obvious enough to me. That's says probably more about me than it does about the book. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so you had your chance to have a cherry and you missed it. But mm, since do. that, there were there were no cherries that, in the way you do, you're describing Paul and Jessica, their powers. I don't remember anything else. Uh, that specific. I remember that specific yeah. part, and then a slow build to that. So what you're what you're looking at is that slow build, and maybe something else will happen in the future books or future chapters of this book. But that happened on the thumper, that infusion of power, and Paul is like, "Wow, I'm exceeding my mom." But and then Paul was kind of brought back to you know Earth, you know, for lack of a better term, and no pun intended. When Jessica tells him, yeah, this is great, you're doing good, but you need to learn more. And then he continues to learn more in a steady pace there, but that ability to read the room kind of equals out with him and Jessica, as I see it, but his ability to see the future, which is what the Benning Jesserts are supposed to manipulate, that is shown that he's exceeding her, his mother. And I think the most explicit example of that to you know, to date, um, is him going, wow, she's doing everything that will set up the Fremen for this jihad, even though she, what she's doing is the right thing. Mm-hmm. But because in his mind, he's like, we have to stop the jihad. She's my enemy. 
But at the same time, he wants to have his time with Cheney and, you know, do all the stuff that married people do, including probably, I don't know, take vacations on the other side of Arrakis or whatever the hell, you know, you do in that situation. So as he wants to enjoy his time with Cheney because he sees a time of peace, he also sees that his mother is going to bring about this jihad. And while he's calling her his enemy for it, at the same time, he's planning for this jihad, and he knows that something's going to happen, and he is responsible for dealing with it. Let's just say that. That's what I get from where we are in the book. That's what. That's how I see their relationship. Yeah, I think that makes sense. I feel like you understand this book a little more than I do at this point, but I know that I'm going to feel that again when we have our guests on, because there's always stuff that I miss. It's a book. I mean, that's that's what the rereads are for. But right, and I'm doing some extracurricular, you know, study with this book. That's so, true. I don't do that. So some of the themes that I pull out, yeah, they're my own. Sometimes they're backed up by what I read in, you know, Cliff Notes or Spark Notes or you know, just people talking about this book, listening to others, others in our shoes, laymen pontificate on Dune. Sometimes I'm like, oh, yeah, I totally agree with that. And sometimes I'm like, oh, I didn't see that at all. So regardless, when I pontificate on this stuff, uh, I also have spent two, three hours this week kind of going through the notes. Fair um, enough. Fair enough. And that doesn't mean so, what you're doing is wrong or right. It's just like we were both coming at it from two different perspectives. We talked about it last week, right? You like the story. You like the plot, the characters, the world. You want to unpack all that. As much as I like that, I always talk about the worldview of the author or why is this guy doing what he's doing? What is the impetus for this woman seducing the Baron's nephew? What does that say about the culture of the Harkonnens? What does it say about the Bene Gesserits? That's where I thrive. I think it's natural because if you start talking about the world building and point out details about Chris Knives or Thumpers or how a character does X, from your perspective, I might have missed nine out of the right, ten things right. that you, you pull out. So it's all good. So I want to do a, a thing that you made me think of real quick, which is what questions do you have right now from the story? One of the questions I have is why is the Fade Ratha – bloodline so important to the Fenrings and why is the Harkonnen bloodline so important because we did find out recently that Jessica is the daughter of Baron Harkonnen and it was purposefully colluded to send Jessica to Duke Leto Mm -hmm. to have the bloodlines return to each other so so this idea of bloodlines is an unanswered question that I'm curious about that's one of my questions that I'm like huh Okay, like that's interesting. I believe you, but I don't know why. And it's, you know, just an unasked question. And then yeah. So that that's my unasked question. What do you have any unasked questions or, or questions that you're thinking of right now before we dive into themes? Because I think that's a strong way for us to Yeah, go. yeah, for sure. I have some. So when Lady Fenring tells Fade Ratha that he does not have the permission to fight in her honor or for yeah. the honor of her name. Yeah, her, yeah. Um, uh, to dedicate you, de- his kid dedicate, to her. Dedicate, yeah. Yeah. And she's like, yeah, you don't have the permission to do that. Why and how? What in the Harkonnen theology, philosophy, culture dictates that he, as a royal, does not have the permission to dedicate this kill to her, also Yeah, that's royal. fair. Yeah. It's, because it's like, if I say to you, Jonathan, let's say we're both royals, and we're at a mutual g- gathering, 
and I say the next <laughs> An song... afternoon Coliseum jaunt. Yes, the next song by Slava's band is dedicated to my buddy Jonathan, and you're like, yeah, dude, you don't have permission to do that. It'd be like, well, screw you, dude. Like my analogy kind of get stretched. I understand, but that jumped out at me. And another question that I had was seems you know kind of innocuous, but it's something that stood out to me as interesting is when Paul tells Cheney that you're the strong one, Cheney, stay with me. She says always and kisses him. It seems to me that from the beginning of their relationship, Paul was kind of lovestruck. He found her very beautiful and he saw himself in visions with her, but quickly Cheney falls in love with him too. And again, because Herbert is Herbert and we already established that he writes well, this wasn't like a throwaway thing. And now they're in love and they went and stooped and now they're married two <laughs> years later in chapter 37. Do you want to explain stooped to the audience? Uh, yes. Yeah, so when a man and a woman love each other, sometimes they get naked and wrestle. So that sex, <laughs> Like alligators. Sex, like alligators. Um, I still, I'm still mad about last week's alligator tail and tail. I told uh, the tail, but eating tail, it was disgusting. Although, sounds like this a week's problem. lobster tail, this week's lobster tail was primo. Okay, you just want to read sultry romance novels. Don't don't you try and commandeer our podcast and make us read sultry romance novels. We're gonna have the wrong audience. Hey, at least it's an audience. I mean, I love our five <laughs> listeners, but keep damn keep it, going. Man. Just oh man. No, I want to know more about. Cheney and Paul, like maybe pull the curtain, uh, pull, pull, yeah, pull the curtain back and say, like, here's where that spark happened, and it doesn't have to be romantic because fuck that right in the ear. <laughs> Romance no. is dumb. That's for it is girls. Dumb. No, it's not for girls. It's not for anybody. It's stupid because romance is a fleeting, fleeting thing. Anyway, what I want to know <laughs> is what in the uh, Fremen culture melted Cheney's heart or set or made her think, you know what? Pause the guy for practical, pr- pragmatic reasons, because the Fremen are pretty practical and pragmatic. You know, take that very, from Jameis' so. wife. They're like, all right, Jameis is dead and he was a moron. This young guy is now either my husband or my master, and he's going to take care of my two sons, and I'm okay with that. And the two sons are like, new dad must protect. So without that being, you know, without that being cheesy and kind of, Again, another day Deus Ex Machina, the way it's explained, well, that's just the Fremen way. So what in the Fremen way? That really should be a curse. Cheney... What in the Fremen way? What in the Fremen? <laughs> yep. Uh, don't be a Jameis, okay? Don't be a Jameis. We should, we should, yes. Yep, don't be a Jameis. Yep. Um, yeah, so what made Cheney realize Paul is the one for her? Is it? Because, yeah. You know, she's young and Paul's young and, you know, practical way he, he can fight and he's loved by the people. He's going to be, he knows my, he knew my father. Was it something like that? Or is there something behind the curtain with that fate and free will kind of stuff, right? That she's fated to him because of what's mm-hmm. happening in the future. That's what I want to know. Because it seems that even their first interaction, she's a little briskly, but she's not. She's she she's not off put by him, right? He's not off putting to her. She's just a girl who is part of a fighting clan, and then these two douchebags come by, 
and she quickly realizes who they are, and then they're in, supposedly in love, and this is, right. a, this is skipping ahead into the next section, but in the next section, they're literally in love. They act like a normal married couple that likes each other. So I want to know more there, because I think that's an interesting sub-story to unpack. Just from Slava the Ru- perspective. Slava loves sultry romance. Got it. I we do. got it. I do. So I, unapologetic. Fifty Shades of Cheney. No? No. That's too much. <laughs> um, Fifty Shades of Dune? Fifty Shades of Dune. Fifty Shades of Sandworm. Fifty <laughs> Shades of yes. Chris Knives. Anyway. Uh, Sandworms and Chris Knives. That, that could be a That's book that a two. Thing? Anyway. The, we're getting close to time here, so we're not going to have time to talk about all three of these themes. Power and Suffering, Fate versus Free Will, and human potential, but let's just take two of them. You're already you're already kind of talking about power when you when you mentioned like these tribes, and power has kind of been a, something we've talked about, and it's a deep theme here. So, give me a quick rundown when we see power and suffering, because you uh, before the show you you had a quick couple statements that were pretty good, and I think are bouncing off points, and then we'll pick one more of these before we uh, wrap her up. Yeah, so what Paul is learning is the pathway to power and survival is always, you know, maybe always is a strong word again, but is dependent, a lot of times dependent on the suffering and death of others. And it affects the environment. Say that again for me slower. Just, well, I'm because I'm like trying to let it sink into my mind. Okay. Say that again. The pathway to power and mm-hmm. survival is often dependent on the suffering and death of others, and sometimes the environment, which you can't escape. I feel like that's true for the environment because that's how ecosystems work. Things break down, things grow, flourish, predators eat prey, blah, blah, blah. Power, I I think I'm just like thinking it through and wrestling with it and going, and this is how my mind works, right? This is why I needed you to repeat it a second time. When someone says something, it goes through my filter of, is this true? Right? Not like, do I feel like this is true, which is a different statement. It's, is this true in terms of the state of the world and the space-time continuum? And when I say things like the space-time continuum, I'm talking about, is this true in the past? Is this true in the ancient times? Is this true in the present? Is this true in the future? Is this a truth, uh, an, an, an objectable truth, Um uh, Objective, not objectable, objective truth, where something has to suffer for power to reign. And I I want to lean with a no, but I don't have proof in my mind for that. Anyway, thanks for taking a little trip with me on my my thoughts. Back to you, Slava. <laughs> yeah, well, I'll tell to... you why I think it's true. Sure. Here's the thing. I'm going to preface it. We are entering into a world that is fictional, but that is created by a man who is not fictional, and who has a worldview. And that's something I'm going to keep saying because it's just absolutely freaking true. You cannot escape your worldview. Herbert is writing, you know, is creating this world. And in this world, like oftentimes in our world, the quest for power by those that seek to rule and others who seek survival, Fremen versus Harkonnens here, there's always death and destruction. 
And from the Christian perspective, we can say, hey, well, this is the world, you know, that we have because of sin and corruption and our human predicament, if you will. I'm going to use them kind of very top generic terms. Human nature. Not to get into the weeds because I don't want to get off track. So because of those things, it is undeniable, inescapable, that the, the, the quest for power and survival by, by men with their proclivities will result in death and suffering. The Fremen have to kill to survive. The Harkonnens have to kill to, and subjugate to keep their power. And in the midst of this, there's a button of suffering. And what we've learned in this world and in our real world is suffering produces resiliency and endurance. So you can't escape it. That's the kind of like the ecological, if you will. Uh, yeah, the, the ecology system. of philosophy. Of, the ecology of, the... of philosophy, beautiful. So, like, ecology of... false failure to find a peaceable solution to the duel with Jameis, that suggests that better outcomes do not necessarily arise from great abilities. So even people who are good, you know, spe- comparatively speaking, like Leto versus you know, the rapey baron. So even Leto, um, with all his good qualities, has made mistakes. And the, the the good he tried to do, what he thought was good, or the right, or the noble thing, ended up destroying his house. Dr. Yui, for all his desires to avenge his wife and save his wife, all I'm saying is, and I make, I'm not even trying to make a any kind of direct moral value statement about any of that, but using those as examples to say only the following, life is messy, and at these levels, these people, they're operating, like forget two guys who work in marketing, but this is high-level stuff, running the world kind of stuff, there's always death. You can't have it otherwise. We don't live in a utopia. Yeah. That's how I read it. My hang-up was with the death section of this, where it's like power... To gain power requires death and suffering. The suffering part, I that's I had an epiphany last episode or two episodes ago where it was like, oh, actually, I'm actually super passionate about suffering. That I'm fine with. It's the death part, but the th- I think I think my hangup is that I'm applying it to the real world because I often read literature as a form of therapy, if you will, where it's like, okay, what are the truths that I'm finding here, or what are the the rules of life? And for Dune here, hundred percent. Power and suffering, power requires death and suffering to achieve. Yep, totally get it, totally fine. And then thinking back through, it's like, well, Genghis Khan, same thing. Alexander the Great, same thing. Like, okay, the level of power, because I was also thinking about power. I think, and I I feel like I've talked about this before, but maybe not, that humans have the opportunity to achieve their fullest potential. It's available to all of us. The 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 cup that is our potential is different every person has a different cup but you have the potential you have the opportunity to fulfill the potential that is the cup that you've been given regardless of if whether or not you were born with a birth defect like myself or you were born an average human or you had a traumatic childhood like you like everyone can fill the potential but that to me is being a powerful person and so when i think of power i don't first think about royals and ruling the world stuff so this is why i had you repeat it twice and again welcome to my mind is thinking about the statement and and mulling it over and chewing on it and reviewing it and thinking okay 
where is this accurate? It's like, well, Genghis Khan, Alexander the Great, you know, a lot of the wars. Okay, all right, yep, so that those are true. And then it's like, oh, I'm making a differentiation here between the word power and how it applies to individuals, which is a very zoomed-in view, versus real life, versus the book itself. So I'm off-base, but I'm also not off-base, right? The thing you have to differentiate, yes, the word power and its definitions, because yes, I have the power to change myself, and I have, and you have the power to improve yourself, and you have. You do not have the power to storm the White House, take it over, and become King Jonathan. Not without an army, and I'm not even making a January 6th reference. Forget that that crap. I, I do not care. I'm using it as an example. This is a very apolitical podcast because of pox on both their houses, all of you. Just do not care. You can refer to me as Lord Jonathan the power of Comsolin. to take over America. What's that? I said you can refer to me as Lord Jonathan of Comsolin. That, that, that's fine. Uh, I just need an office and a steady paycheck when you take over. That's all I care about. Okay. So you do not have the power. Like, you cannot, even if you convince 50 of your friends to overthrow the American government or Canadian government or, the, you know, your state's, you know, delegation, whatever, you do not have the power. So to get that kind of power, you will need a lot of death and suffering. A lot of people will have to die for Jonathan to become king of America, in my silly example here. So that's the kind of power they're talking about, the power to rule and change and move nations, for, for example. Neither of us have that kind of power. But yeah, if you want to lose the belly flab, you have the power to work out every day and lose that belly flab. You want to overcome your traumatic childhood? Yes, you have the power to do that. So different, you know, that's why definitions matter. Worldviews, yep. definitions, your, how you articulate your particular philosophy matters. This is a prime example, and this is a very minor example, but it creates a good dialogue, right? But all those things matter. Right, exactly. And I, I think it's, uh, well, I agree. I, this is just how my mind works, because I think about the definitions of words. I think about how they're used, the context. And uh, I got ahead of myself in, in this, this theme discussion. Yeah, I think I agree with it after uh, I needed to work it out here real quick. So That's good. Hey, nice side quest. Yes. And we didn't even call it a side quest, but this was a side right. quest. All right. So as we're winding down, let's quickly touch on fate and free will, and then we can land this plane. So maybe you can, because I've brought this up a few times now, and we've used my notes as a jumping off point, but without any notes, just <laughs> as the reader that you fate are, and, free will. Go. and that's a good thing, what do you think? As Where has this popped up? As you're reading, listening to this, where does this uh, tension, if you want to call it, between fate and free will jump out at you? And then I'll give you some of my, uh, some of my points. Well, the, the fate and free will starts with Paul, right? It, we see in chapter one, he feels his terrible purpose. In his character as a whole, he feels both fate and free will because he's feeling the fate, but then he gets to choose how he's going to react. Then we see that play out up until this point where he sees these prophetic visions that partly come true, where it's like, okay, fate told him this stuff was coming, 
free will dictated that it was a little different. Uh, not just him, but also the free will of the other characters in the visions. So the fate and free will theme lives and breathes in Paul, as well as sisterly, pun intended, with the Bene Gesserit women, because they've been controlling this for how long? Who knows? They're so innately tied together that I don't think we see a good example where fate was prompted, like you, you, you threw the ball up for fate, and then free will purposefully ignored it and did something else, which would be a very interesting scene to throw in here, unless I'm forgetting something, but Paul continually, he starts to mold his free will to the fate that he feels called to. So, yes, do you want to say something about yeah, that? absolutely. Something we forgot to talk about is Paul's new name, new identity. Oh, yeah, you talked about that. Yep. He, he's given. So we, we forgot to talk about that in detail, but we'll use it We'll use it to segue into your comments or, or dovetail your comments. Paul's choice of the Fremen name is part of him experimenting, what you said, using free will to change the future, specifically what he sees as the jihad coming. So in his visions... He takes the name Muad'Dib, so he changes that when he says, hey, can you call me Paul Muad'Dib because I want to give honor to my father. That's him experimenting. But at the same time, he knows that this decision does not alter the jihad because of the visions he still sees. So this is part of like his destiny, fate. And then as we move closer to the end of chapter 37, by this point, Paul's visions of the future are beginning to feel like a trap closing in on him. So remember our discussion on free will? We all have free will, but we are bound by our nature. So if you have an addictive personality, as a very simple, very simple base example, if you have an addictive personality, sure, you have free will not to drink or smoke or put a needle in your arm. But if that addictive personality is compounded by baggage and trauma and maybe emotional, uh, being emotionally stinted, you will freely choose your addiction over and over and over and over again. And some people will argue, well, no, it's a, it's a disorder, it's a disease. But in the, the day, you ch- your free will that is corrupt, uh, that's bound by those things, you will choose it. So no matter what Paul does, he, he might be able to alter certain things because he has this prophetic ability, Paul now feels trapped by the future that he sees. And that's why I think he wants to just spend some time with Cheney in peace, you know, make love, make babies, go on walks, you know, in the dunes, watch <laughs> out for the worms. And then he knows he's going to have to deal with that terrible fate, that terrible purpose. So that and what he realizes there's more at stake, more players in this game than just him and his mother and Cheney and the Fremen. There's the Imperium. There's the Bene Gesserit. There's Baron Harkonnen. There's all the stuff that his father did. There's probably Hawat and Idaho. All these things are happening, and they're all being pulled in one particular direction. So Paul, then, this section, I think, like I said, he feels trapped. He realizes that, you know what? 
there are some things I can change and there are some things I can't. And that we see a little bit of growth in Paul in, in, in this area. He quickly takes on his mantle as the last royal of the house of Atreides. And he understands his new role in a new environment. He adapts well. And despite seeing his mom is an enemy, I'm doing air quotes there, he still loves her, loves his uh, sister, and he understands she's not a true enemy, not like the Baron is. So I think Paul is beginning to understand that even though he does have free will, he's going to use it to change the things he can, and he's slowly realizing that there's some things that he can't change. And that's, a, that's actually a good lesson for everybody. There are in the real world here, there are some things you can't change. Like you need to work in order to eat. Um, but you can choose where you can work, and it might take you a while to get the job that you really like or want or that's satisfactory or just good enough and you know to escape maybe a bad boss, a bad paycheck, whatever. But that's what you can change. Like your disability, or you can't change that. You can just learn to live with it. My past, I can learn how to adapt, respond better, and emotionally and spiritually mature instead of letting it control me. Thus ended the lesson, boys and girls. That's it. That's the show. Let us know in the comments what you felt about this section, what you read, what you saw. You know, Feel free to start a chat about the themes that we didn't cover, which is human potential, power in nature, religion, and control, and we'll, we'll chat with you in the comments about it. Like, share, and subscribe. Tell your friends. Hey, we're reading books, and we're going on some side quests. That's it. Goodbye, good people.